Chapter 29 The Life and Adventures of James P. Beckworth Mountaineer, Scout, and Pioneer and Chief of the Crow Nation of Indians Written from his own dictation by T.D. Bonner This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. I had speedy passage to St. Louis and arrived there after an absence of five months. I mentioned that I had left some business unsettled at the time of my sudden leave. This was none other than an affair matrimonial, but on my return I had some misunderstanding with my fair Dulcinea, and the courtship dropped through. At this time the Florida War was unfinished. General Gaines was in St. Louis for the purpose of raising a company of men familiar with Indian habits. Mr. Sublett had spoken to him about me, and had recommended me as being particularly well acquainted with Indian life. The General sent a request that I would call upon him at his quarters. I went accordingly and was introduced by Sublett. The general inquired of me how I would like to go to Florida to fight the Indians. I replied that I had seen so much of Indian warfare during the last 16 years that I was about tired of it and did not want to engage in it again, at least for the present. He remarked that there was a good opportunity there for renown. He wished, he said, to raise a company which would go down as muleteers, that their duties would be light, and so on through the stereotyped benefits peculiar to a soldier's life. Sublet recommended me to engage. Florida, he said, was a delightful country, and I should find a wide difference between the cold regions of the Rocky Mountains and the genial and salubrious South. The general then inquired if I could not raise a company of mountain boys to go with me. I replied that I thought I could, or that, at any rate, I would make the effort. The trapping business was unusually dull at that time, and there were plenty of unoccupied men in the city ready to engage in any enterprise. I went among my acquaintance and soon collected a company of sixty-four men. I went and reported my success to the general. He wished to see the men. I brought them all forward and had their names enrolled. I was appointed captain of the company, with three lieutenants elected from the men. On the ninth day of my stay in St. Louis, we went on board a steamer going downstream and were quickly on our way to the Seminole country. We had a delightful journey to New Orleans, where we were detained five days in waiting for a vessel to transport us to the fields of renown. While waiting in New Orleans, I fell in with several old acquaintances, who gave me an elegant parting dinner. I then sported the commission of captain in the service of Uncle Sam 
our vessel, the Maid of New York, Captain Carr being at length ready for sea. My soldiers, with their horses, were taken on board, and we set sail for Tampa Bay. I now, for the first time in my life, saw salt water, and the sickness it produced in me led me to curse General Gaines and the trappings of war to boot. Our vessel stranded on a reef, and there she remained snug enough, all efforts to dislodge her proving fruitless. There was one small island in sight to leeward. In every other direction, there was nothing visible but the heaving ocean. Wreckers, who seemed to rise from the sea foam, flocked instantly around us and were received by our captain with a ready volley of nautical compliment. The vessel had settled deeply into a bed of sand and rock. The water was rapidly gaining in her hold, and my commission, together with my gallant companions in arms, seemed, at that moment, to have a slim chance of ever serving our respected uncle in the fields of renown. I ascended the rigging to take a survey of the country. Many a time an elevated prospect had delivered me from difficulties, if dissimilar, yet not less eminent, than those that now menaced me. Still, I felt that, could those ratlines I was now ascending be transformed into the back of my Indian war steed, this ocean be replaced with a prairie, and that distant speck which they called an island be transmuted into a buffalo, I would give my chance of a major generalship in purchase of the change. For the sensations of hunger I began to feel were uncomfortably acute and I saw no immediate prospect of alleviating the pain. Suddenly, I saw a long line of black smoke, which I thought must be from a prairie fire. I reported my discovery to the captain, and he hoisted our colors at half-mast to signal for assistance. A small steamer came in sight and made toward us, and finally ranged up under our stern. She took off all my men except myself and twelve others. I wrote to the Commandant at Tampa Bay to inform him of our situation, and asking him for immediate assistance. After twelve days' stay on the reef, two small brigs came out to us, and received on board ourselves, with our horses and forage, conveying us to Tampa Bay, where they cast anchor. Major Bryant sent for me to his quarters, and I forthwith presented myself before him. This officer gave me a very cordial welcome, congratulating the service on having an experienced mountaineer and saying several other very complimentary things. At length, he said, Captain Beckworth, I wish to open a communication between this port and the headquarters of Colonel Jessup, distant about 100 miles. I have received no dispatches from there, 
although nine couriers have been dispatched by Colonel Taylor. I replied, Sir, I have no knowledge of the country. I know nothing of its roads or trails, the situation of its posts, nor do I so much as know the position of Colonel Jessup's command. To attempt to convey dispatches while so little prepared to keep out of harm's way, I very much fear would be to again disappoint the service in the delivery of its messages and to afford the Seminoles an additional scalp to those they have already taken. He pooh-poohed my objections. A man, said Major Bryant, who has fought the Indians in the Rocky Mountains the number of years that you have, will find no difficulty here in Florida. Well, I assented. Furnish me with the bearings of the country and direct me to the colonel's camp, and I will do my best to reach there. Accordingly, the major furnished me with all the necessary instructions, and I started alone on my errand. It was my acquired habit never to travel along any beaten path or open trail, but rather to give such road a wide berth and take the chances of the open country. I observed my invariable custom on this occasion merely keeping in view the bearings of the position I was steering for. I started for Major Bryant's post about sunrise and reached the colonel's headquarters at nightfall the following day. I passed through the camp without seeing it, but the sound of a bugle falling on my ear, I tacked about and finally alighted upon it. As I rode up, I was hailed by a sentinel. Who come, dear? An express. Vat you want in dish camp? I wished to see Colonel Jessup call the officer of the guard. That for you come from that way, verish de Cheminos. Call your officer of the guard, said I impatiently. The officer of the guard at length appeared. What are you here again for? he inquired of me. I wish to see the commanding officer, I replied. Yes, you are always wishing to see the commanding officer, he said. But he will not be troubled with you much longer. He will soon commence hanging you all. I demand to be shown to the commanding officer, sir, I reiterated. Who are you then? I am a bearer of dispatches. Give them to me. I was not instructed to give them to you. I shall not do it, sir. I believe you came from the Seminoles. You came from that direction. You believe wrong, sir. Will you show me to Colonel Jessup, or will you not? This very cautious officer of the guard then went to the Marquis of the Colonel and addressed him. Here is another of those Seminoles, sir who says he has dispatches for you. What shall I do with him? The colonel came out and eyed me scrutinizingly. Have you brought dispatches for me? He inquired. I have, sir. From where? From Tampa Bay, sir. He came from the Seminoles, colonel, interposed the officer of the guard. You are mistaken again, sir, I said. 
giving him the look of a crow in the midst of battle, for I was not yet hireling enough not to feel aggravated at being called, by implication, a liar. Let me see your dispatches, said the colonel. I handed him the documents. He took them and passed into his tent. This did not suit me. I resolved to return instantly. I had not been treated with common civility. No inquiries had been made about my appetite. I was not even invited to alight from my horse. I had neither eaten nor slept since I left Tampa Bay. I was on the point of turning my horse's head, secretly resolving that these were the last dispatches I would bear in that direction, when the colonel called. Captain Beckworth, alight! Alight, sir, and come into my quarters. Orderly, have Captain Beckworth's horse taken immediately care of. You must be hungry, Captain. What I need most now is sleep, I said. Let me have a little repose, and then I shall feel refreshed and will not refuse to sit down to a meal. The colonel bowed assent, and raising a canvas door, pointed out to me a place for repose at the same time promising me I should not be disturbed. When I awoke, I presented myself and was regaled with a good substantial supper. This recruited me, and I was again fit for service. The colonel made many inquiries of my past service. Major Bryant had made very favorable mention of me in his dispatches, which seemed to have inspired quite an interest in the colonel's mind. He asked me if I was a native of Florida, where I had spent my early days, and my reason for entering the army. I answered all his questions as briefly as possible, mentioning that I had been tempted among the Seminoles by the promise held out by General Gaines of my gaining renown. The colonel thought my company of mountaineers a valuable acquisition to the service, and he made no doubt we should achieve great credit in ferreting out the hiding places of the Indians. He soon had his papers ready. They were delivered to me, and I departed. On the way, I stopped at a fort, the name of which I forget, and took a fresh horse. I finally arrived at the bay without seeing an Indian. I stayed with my company for two or three weeks at Fort Brook, during which time we were engaged in breaking in mules. We were then placed under the command of Colonel Taylor, afterward General and President of the United States, whose force was composed of United States troops and volunteers, some of the latter being from Missouri. The colonel advanced southward with 1,600 men, erecting, as we advanced, a fort at the interval of every 25 miles. On the morning of Christmas Day, 1837, our camp was beleaguered by a large force of Indians, and Colonel Taylor ordered an advance upon them. The spot was thickly grown with trees and numbers of our assailants were concealed among the branches. As our line advanced, therefore, many were singled out by the enemy, and we lost fearfully in killed and wounded, 
The yelling was the most deafening I ever heard, for there were many Negroes among the enemy, and their yells drowned those of the red man. I soon found we had a different enemy from the Blackfeet to fight, and different ground to fight on. The country lost several valuable lives through this slight brush with the Indians. The gallant Colonel Gentry of the Missouri Volunteers was shot through the head. Colonel Thompson and several other officers were also among the slain. The enemy had made an excellent choice of ground and could see our troops while remaining concealed themselves. I placed myself behind a tree, and Captain Morgan of the Missouri Spies was similarly sheltered close by. We were surrounded with Indians, and one was watching on the opposite side of the tree that protected me for a chance to get my scalp. A Missourian picked off a fine fat negro who had ensconced himself in a live oak tree. As he fell to the ground, it shook beneath him. The fruit was ripe, but unfit for food. Seeing the men dropped around, Major Price ordered a retreat. The order was instantly countermanded by Colonel Davenport, who, by doing so, saved many lives. Colonel Foster had taken a very exposed position on the bow of a tree, where he was visible to all. He ordered his men to lie low and load their muskets. He waited till he saw a favorable opportunity, and then shouted, Fire, boys, and poured into the red and black rascals. A charge with bayonets was finally ordered, and the Indians, not relishing the look of the sharp steel, retreated. However, not before they had seized a sergeant major and a private from our line and scalped them alive. This was the Battle of Okeechobee, which lasted four hours. We lost over a hundred in killed and wounded. The enemy left nine Indians and a Negro dead upon the field. Sam Jones, the half-breed, was only eight miles distant, with a force of a thousand warriors. Most providentially, he had been dissuaded by the Negroes from advancing, who assured him that the whites would not fight on Christmas Day. It was reported that Colonel Taylor was uncontrollably angry during the battle, and that his aides and other officers had to hold him by main force to prevent him from rushing among the enemy and meeting certain death. I do not know what truth there was in this, for I saw nothing of it, nor, indeed, did I see the colonel during the whole of the four hours' fighting. On the conclusion of the action, Colonel Taylor wished to send dispatches to Tampa Bay. He requested Captain Lomax to take his company and go with them. The captain refused, for the reason that he and his men would infallibly be massacred. The colonel remarked then, Since you are all afraid, I will go myself. He sent for me and demanded if I could raise a sufficient number of brave men among my mountaineers 
to carry dispatches to the bay. I answered, certainly, if I could have his favorite horse, which was the fleetest one in the whole army, and such excellent bottom that he was as fresh after a journey as before. I considered that, if I had to run the gauntlet through a host of Seminoles and infuriated Negroes, the best horse was none too good, and was indeed my only means of salvation. When ready to start, I applied for the dispatches. Where are your men? asked the colonel. My men are in their quarters, colonel, I said. I am going to carry those dispatches by myself. They must go through, he remarked, and I want them to go well guarded. I am not going to fight, colonel, I replied. I am going to run. And one man will make less noise than twenty. If I am not killed, the dispatches shall arrive safe. My life is certainly worth as much to me as the charge I am entrusted with, and for personal safety I prefer going alone. In our progress, out the troops had cut their way through several hummocks and had thrown the bushes up on both sides. I had to pass through some of these lanes. It was night when I started, and as I was riding through one of these excavations at a good pace, I heard a sudden noise in the brush. I saw myself in a trap, and my hair bristled up with the fright. I was greatly relieved, however, by the speedy discovery that it was only a deer I had scared, and which was scampering away at its utmost speed. I continued on, resting a short time at each fort, until I arrived in sight of Fort Brooke. As soon as I arrived within hailing distance, I shouted, Victory! Victory! which brought out officers and men, impatient to hear the news. I could not see that Okeechobee was much of a victory. Indeed, I shrewdly suspected that the enemy had the advantage. But it was called a victory by the soldiers, and they were the best qualified to decide. On my return, I found Colonel Taylor, soon after the battle, had retrograded to Fort Bassinger. We lay at the fort for a long while. Spies were vigilantly on the lookout, but nothing very encouraging was reported. I and my company of mountaineers did not encamp with the other troops, but took up our quarters at a considerable distance from the main guard. We were quite tired of inactivity, and wanted to go somewhere or do something. Being quartered by ourselves, we were not subjected to the restrictions and military regulations of the camp. We had our own jollifications and indulged in some little comforts which the camp did not enjoy. We always would have a large fire when there was need for it, for it destroyed the millions of mosquitoes and other vermin that annoyed us. And as some of our company were always about, the Indians never molested us. There was a large hummock about four miles distant from the fort, which the Indians infested in great numbers, 
but as they could not be dislodged without great loss, our colonel was constrained to content himself with closely watching them. One day, I proposed to my men to take a stroll, and they fell with great alacrity into the proposition. We passed down to the interdicted hummock, where we shot two deer and found quite an assortment of stock. We drove them all to the camp before us, to the great admiration of the officers and men present. We had captured quite a drove of hogs, several head of cattle, and a good sprinkling of Seminole ponies. We saw no Indians at the hummock, though certainly we did not search very diligently for them. During our stay at the fort, the communication between that post and Charlotte's Harbor was closed, and one messenger had been killed. The quartermaster inquired of me if I would undertake the trip. I told him I would, and set $100 as the price of the undertaking, which he thought quite reasonable. I started with the dispatches and proceeded at an easy gallop, my eye glancing in every direction, as had been my wont for many years. In casting a look about two gunshots ahead, I felt sure that I saw some feathers showing themselves just above the palmettos, and exactly in the direction that I was bending my steps. I rode a short distance farther, and my suspicion was confirmed. I immediately stopped my horse and dismounted, as though for the purpose of adjusting my saddle, but in reality, to watch my supposed foes. In a minute or two, several heads appeared, looking in my direction, and withdrew again in an instant. Immediately, the heads declined behind the grass. I sprang upon my horse and reined him out of the road, taking a wide circuit round them, which I knew would carry me out of danger. I then looked after them and tantalized them with my gestures in every manner possible, motioning them to come and see me. But they seemed to be aware that their legs were not long enough to reach me so they digested their disappointment and troubled me no farther. I arrived safe at the harbor that same day, delivered my dispatches, and was back at the fort the following night. We now experienced a heavy rain, which deluged the entire country and prevented any farther operations against the Indians. The colonel ordered a retreat to Tampa Bay, and as there was no danger of molestation on the way, many of the officers obtained liberty to gallop on in advance of the army. Colonel Bryant rode a very valuable black charger, acknowledged to be the best horse in camp. After traveling on a while, the colonel said, I have a notion to ride on and get in today as my presence is required. You can get in tomorrow at your leisure. A number said, If you can get in today, we can. And finally, the whole party proposed starting off together. 
we at length came to a swampy place in the road which spread over five miles and in many places took our horses off their feet this place forded there was then a narrow stream and after that it was all dry land having passed the swamp and the stream and got fairly on to dry land again i took the saddle off my mule which example all followed and with the assistance of a brother officer wrung the saddle blanket as dry as possible and then spread it out fairly in the sun to dry in the meanwhile the horses helped themselves to a good feed of grass and we all partook of a hearty lunch likewise thus refreshed we saddled up and proceeded again after a few miles travel we discovered the rear of bryant's party who were toiling slowly along and goring their animals flanks in the vain endeavor to urge them into speed we passed them with a hearty cheer we journeyed on until within three miles of the fort where there was a short bend in the road and a foot trail across which saved about a hundred yards now gentlemen said i let us raise a gallop and pass everybody on the road the work was at once accomplished some of my men deriding those left behind on account of their miserable progress we then all struck into a gallop and soon reached the fort and several of our company found time to get quite intoxicated before the quartermaster arrived he however soon recovered his equanimity of temper and begged a solution of the mystery how we could come in with our animals fresh while his and his companions horses were jaded to death he was referred by all to the captain of the mountaineers i said a horse colonel is only flesh and blood and his system requires greater care than that of almost any other animal we beat your powerful steed with inferior animals by affording them a short rest with a mouthful or two of grass on the road and by wringing our blankets after we had passed the water now we had another long interval of inactivity and i began to grow tired of florida with its inaccessible hummocks it seemed to me to be a country dear even at the price of the powder that would be required to blow the indians out of it and certainly a poor field to work in for renown my company and i its commander had nothing to do except to carry an occasional dispatch and i wanted excitement of some kind i was indifferent of what nature even if it was no better than borrowing horses of the blackfeet the seminoles had no horses worth stealing or i should certainly have exercised my talents for the benefit of the united states the last dispatches that i carried in florida i bore from fort day to fort brooke in accomplishing this i traveled with my customary caution avoiding the trail as much as possible in a part where i anticipated no danger i took the trail and fell asleep on my horse for i had ridden four days and nights without rest except what i had snatched upon horseback suddenly 
my horse sprang aside, instantly awaking me. I found I had been sleeping too long, for I had passed the turning point, and was now near a hummock. To return would cost me several miles travel. My horse's ears informed me there was something in motion nearby. I pondered my position, and ultimately resolved to take the chances and go ahead. The road through the hummock was just wide enough to admit the army wagons to pass. I bid my horse go, and he sprung forward with tremendous bounds. He had not reached through this dark and dangerous pass when I saw the flash of several guns and the balls whizzed harmlessly past me. I discharged my pistols at the lair of my foes and traveled on in safety to the fort. I grew tired of this and informed Colonel Bryant that I wished to resign my task. Why, said he, everybody who undertakes it gets killed while you never see any Indians. What are we to do? When in camp, I had frequently seen men come running in half dead with alarm, saying that they had seen Indians or had been fired upon by Indians. I remarked that they were always ridiculed by the officers. Even the privates disbelieved them. Seeing this, I determined to say nothing about my adventure. For, if they had received my assertion with incredulity, it might have led to an unpleasant scene in the wigwam. I was determined to return to the home of the free and the land of the brave, for I felt that the mountains and the prairies of the Great West, although less attended with renown, at least would afford me more of the substantial comforts of life and suit my peculiar taste better than the service of Uncle Sam in Florida. The commander of the fort, after reading the dispatch, endorsed on it. Beckworth fired on by a party of Indians when near this post. He then returned it to me, and I rode on to Fort Brooke. Colonel Bryant, having read the dispatch, said, Ah, Beckworth, you have been fired on, I see. Why did you not tell us so on your arrival? I informed him of my reasons, as before stated. He smiled. Your word would have been believed by us all, he said. It is these stupid foreigners that we discredit, who do not know an Indian from a stump. They have deceived us too often for us to put further faith in them. A Seminole came into the fort a few days subsequent to this to give himself up, his arm being broken. When questioned about it, he said that a white man had broken it in such a hummock on such a night. I then knew that my pistols, which I fired at random, had done the mischief. Alligator, the Seminole chief, shortly after came in and informed Colonel Taylor that he and his tribe had concluded to remove to their new home and requested the colonel to send down wagons to transport their women and children. I have fought you a long time, said the red man, but I cannot beat you. If I kill ten of your warriors, you sent a hundred to replace them. 
I am now ready to go and save the rest of my people. Yes, the colonel answered. Your talk is good. You can now go to your new home and be happy. There is a man, pointing to me, who is a great chief of a great nation. You will, for aught I know, be neighbor to his people. He and his people will teach you to hunt the buffalo, and I hope you will be good friends. While I was with the army, a tragedy occurred, which I have never seen in any public print, and I deem it of sufficient interest to make mention of it here. A young private, of very respectable connections, had been tried for some offense and sentenced to receive a flogging, which was carried unmercifully into effect. After he had recovered, the surgeon bade him go and report himself fit for duty. I will go, said he, but it will be my last duty. Accordingly, he fixed his bayonet and repaired to the officer's quarters, where he found the captain and first lieutenant of his company. He advanced upon them and saying, You have disgraced me with an inhuman flogging. Die! He shot the captain dead and plunged his bayonet through the body of the lieutenant, also killing him on the spot. He straightway gave himself up, was tried by court-martial and sentenced to be shot. The execution of the sentence was withheld by Colonel Taylor, who had forwarded the particulars of the trial to the department at Washington and was awaiting the result of official investigation. The case was found worthy of executive interference. A pardon was signed by the president and sent on, and the young man was liberated from confinement. Such inhuman treatment as this poor young soldier received at the hands of his officers has resulted, I have no shadow of doubt, in the death of many an officer on the battlefield. I remember, at the Battle of Okeechobee, a young lieutenant riding up to Colonel Foster and saying, Colonel, I have been shot at twice, and not by the enemy either. It was by no friend, I will swear, said the colonel. You can leave the field and learn to treat your men well in future. This I witnessed myself, but whether the young buckskin profited by the sharp cut of the colonel, I am unable to say. There was a Tennessean in camp, a great foot racer, who was incessantly boasting about his wonderful pedestrian powers. He had a valuable horse, which he offered to stake against any person in the camp for a race of sixty yards. As he was considered a great leg by all, no one ventured to take up his offer. I offered myself as a competitor, but all sought to dissuade me. Don't run against him, said they. That fellow will outrun Lucifer himself. He has beat every man who has run against him in Florida. However, I staked a hundred dollars against his horse and entered the lists. We started together, 
But as I did not see my antagonist, either ahead of me or by my side, I looked round and saw him coming up. I went out a good distance ahead of him and did not exert myself either. The enemy, having submitted to the government, there was nothing more for us to do, and I asked for a furlough to return to St. Louis. I and my company were enlisted for a year. Ten months of this time had been served, and I obtained a furlough for the remaining two months. We embarked for New Orleans, Colonel Gates and his regiment taking passage in the same ship. Arriving at my place of destination in safety, I stayed but one night in the Crescent City, and then took the steamer to St. Louis, where we had a good time while steaming up, and I was very well satisfied to jump ashore once again at my old home. My company all returned but two, one of whom died in New Orleans, the other was killed by the Seminoles after I left. End of chapter 29